Hello, everyone, and welcome back to an all-new episode of The Financial Confessions. It's me, your host, Chelsea Fagan, founder and CEO of The Financial Diet. And today, I am so, so excited to be here in person with someone that I actually know IRL. Um, He is one of the best friends of uh, the producer who's usually behind uh, the camera on some of our shows here at TFD, our creative director, Holly. Um, He's also a comedian a fellow, I hate to use this word, but sometimes it applies, influencer (laughs) of sorts, uh, but also someone who toiled for many years in many different capacities uh, in the restaurant slash food service industries. Um, Has a lot to say about it, has a lot of crazy stories, a lot of thoughts, uh, and many of them pertain to money, not just the financial realities of working in these jobs and sort of being an employee of what is often a fairly toxic and exploitative industry, but also from the customer perspective. What are some of the customers getting into? Because at some of these fancy New York City restaurants that he worked at for years, um, let's just say people were not uh, bringing their best behavior to the table. Um, But I am so, so excited to talk to him. And I also did his podcast fairly recently, and we had a fabulous conversation. I'm going to link that in the description as well. Um, But without further ado, friend of the pod, Jake Cornell. Hi. Hi, Thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh. Thank you for being here. We've got our our little silly little beverages. What are you drinking? I'm drinking a Diet Coke. And I am drinking a uh, strawberry banana peanut butter smoothie, which some people might be disgusted by, but I'm incredibly pro. I love it. I don't usually go for a smoothie, but when I do. And thanks to PNC Bank for sponsoring this episode of the Financial Confessions. Join me on April 6th at 7 p.m. Eastern for Six Money Lessons I Wish I'd Learned Earlier, a totally free webcast for students. I'll be sharing practical, judgment-free advice that you can start implementing right away. Again, it's totally free, so I'll see you there. I'd like to thank Nutrafol for supporting TFC. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support TFC by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code TFC to save $10 off your first month subscription plus free shipping on every order. So who are you? What do you do? Tell our audience. (laughs) I'm Jake. Um, I'm a comedian in New York. Um... And for many, many years, I was I, I worked when I wasn't able to support myself fully doing comedy. Um, I worked in the restaurant industry for um, almost a, or actually like fully a decade, um, maybe beyond that, because in high school I started I was a Ben and Jerry scooper was my high school job. Hell yeah. And then, you know, through most of college and my first like eight years in New York, seven years in New York, I bartended, I served, I did all these different roles in the restaurant industry. And I really still love the restaurant industry. I'm very much like a part of it, a patron, um, a friend. So it's a huge part of my life outside of doing comedy and stuff. And sometimes they even cross over. I've done a lot of comedy about working in restaurants, about sort of the energies and ideas surrounding like that culture. Um, something I really care about. Uh, you're still a patron of the restaurant industry. Me too. From time (laughs) to time. Heavily. (laughs) Um, So tell me a little bit about the different jobs that you worked and sort of how you moved your way through that industry. I worked in food service quite a bit, but not nearly as extensively or as recently as you did. And I think a lot of people, first and foremost, are not really clear on how one kind of moves through the industry, the roles that you go through, you know, because a lot of people are in these jobs for, like you, decades or more. I would say the traditional entry into the industry is oftentimes um, doing busing or hosting. Those are kind of some of the more entry level for front of house the roles that are kind of like the least people with the least experience will get hired for. And then those are the roles you can kind of get really good at and proficient at to move your way up through front of house. I, um, for my sophomore year of college, the whole thing lived in England. Um, 
I studied abroad there for a year. And when you go to England at the time, the way the visas worked, um, if you went for a year, you got a working visa. And I didn't have money to like go on savings to England. So I just got a job and that job was bartending. The service style is very different. In the UK, um, bartending is a much more straightforward thing there. Like, if you go to a pub, you can't order a cocktail. It's just, like, a vodka soda. It's just a pint. And so they don't need, like, a certain – there's a level of experience that just isn't required. Right. Um, And so I was able to bartend in England at 18, 19 with no experience. But then when I moved back to America a year later, I had a year of bartending experience on my resume. So I was kind of able to cut the line in that way. Yeah. So I started bartending and serving – pretty quickly I did um have to bus and host occasionally when I was in Vermont and then when I moved to New York I transitioned from casual restaurants into fine dining Mm. and there they made you start at the bottom so I went back to being a busser um which they called a back server which is sort of like the the luxury term for a busser um and I did that at and then worked my way back up to serving and bartending in New York the New York scene so um it kind of is not like a straight path or straight line. I think the only way you can really have that is if you work at like one restaurant the whole way. Otherwise, yeah. I do think it often kind of is this zigzag loop-de-loop path that people have. Um, was Did you like working fine dining? No. I feel like it seems so dreary. It – the thing about it is I don't know what the purpose of it is in terms of working so? for it. Because um, I think that fine dining is in an interesting place right now where I think a lot of it is, um, or especially when I was working in it, which at this point was like six or seven years ago, um, it was at this sort of point of critical mass where the expectation of the product was so high that the work demand was incredibly high. I was working, when I worked at that the fine dining restaurant, I was there usually between 50 and 60 hours a week. Oh my gosh. Um, and... That was because, and there were so many people working because you needed to do a restaurant at high volume and incredibly high service. Mm. You need a ton of bodies, right? There's someone whose entire job the entire night is just to polish wine glasses so that every wine glass is coming out without a single smudge on it, right? So like all of those people are then in the tip pool. So you're working this really high level job that in an earlier phase was incredibly well paying because it was a luxury product. It was a luxury space. But then as the ex- the expectations grew, I think the number of people working kind of grew to the point where, like, the money that I was making working in fine dining was just as good, if not less, than what I could have been making in, like, a more high-volume casual restaurant. Right. Which I didn't know at the time. I thought I was making the best money I could make, and it just wasn't that great. I didn't understand until later, like, oh, I was – this wasn't – it wasn't the best move for me, like, fiscally to be working there. Um and yeah, it was really hard. And also that clientele is that that dynamic between clientele and server and bartender and whatever is, I think, the most that still holds that dynamic of like, you are a servant, you are beneath. And totally. that is really, I think for some people, they can really overcome that or um, combat it. I found it really, it really um, chipped away at me. I could totally understand. I mean, when I say dreary, like I'm mostly thinking from a, from the server's perspective of like you cannot catch a vibe with people. Like you are not you're so formal and totally. distant and like I've I said this on your podcast, but like my husband enjoys fine dining. I'm to me it's a little wasted on me, but he, you know, every now and again for a special occasion, he likes to go out and like do the like real gastronomy totally. where like 
And interestingly, fun fact, so we have been to a few very high-end like Danielle and stuff like that that are French ones. Um, And it's so funny because they're often extremely reserved, extremely distant. They're very like, I think they're obviously taught to keep a really sort of, like you said, like a servant's relationship to the customer. Um, But a lot of the times, like the... You know, the head uh, server, the sommelier, will be a French person. And so, like, my husband and I will, like, kind of be like, buddy, and, like, in French, whatever. And, he and like, oftentimes they'll be like, oh, girl. Like, and they'll really let it loose a little bit when they're, like, when they feel kind of safe to do so. But then you see the, like, the the formal stance that they have to take with people. And to me, it seems very inhuman. Yeah. I mean, I think the best servers that worked in those spaces are the ones that could really do that ballet of figuring out what tables and what parties really want that servant who is a blank canvas and really devoid is like providing the information providing the service without really doing any razzle dazzle personality and who is more looking for that human connection and then being able to do both and I think that's like really impressive I think now in the New York restaurant scene most restaurants and most high-end restaurants exist in that space of being like at a higher price point, being nice, being like a, um, being like an elevated um, atmosphere, an elevated product, but the service is very human. You know, it's very right. interactive. It's um, it might be quick, but there is like personality that's to be shown, and I think that's what really makes service great. Um, and I think that I think that there are still there are always going to be those New York institutions, your Danielles, that are going to default to that really uptight reserved sort of service because there is still that New York clientele that like old money older clientele that really wants that experience um and I just I I think that there will always be a desire for that as long as like there is like an upper class that has been like raised in that yeah um but I do think it is less desired now than it was maybe 15 20 years ago I think so. I think I also like I really struggle with, you know, as I again mentioned on your podcast as well, but like it's a very disorienting thing when you go to certain restaurants like that that are, you know, for my husband and I, they're like a once every couple year occasion. Mm-hmm. And you're often surrounded by people for whom this is a place that they'll eat at on a weekly basis. Yes. And I do think that they're to me, even if you don't necessarily go into these experiences, and I think this can be said about a lot of luxury goods and experiences, even if you don't necessarily go into it with this very jaded, distant, inhuman kind of relationship, Mm -hmm. it it almost kind of feels inevitable that you would get there because you become so numb to it. Yes. I always said that one one of the things that made me the saddest when I worked in that restaurant was that, um, I worked for, I don't want to name him, but there I the restaurant was owned by a very famous New York restaurateur. Um, and part of the desire of his of his restaurants is um, one, this sort of unspoken thing that the customer's always right. We don't really say no. We make things happen. Unless they are asking for like the moon to be a different shape than it is that night. <laughs> like we will try to make it happen. And um, and also that there is a there is a um there's a database of clientele. When Chelsea Fagan comes in, we know her name. We know what she likes. We know her allergies. If she's been spending enough money, we know what table she likes. We know what servers she likes. Like, And that's all printed on a ticket that's handed to the server discreetly before you even sit down. So there's – and there's a level of like um, – for the people who come there often and spend money there often, they are treated like royalty and they're given whatever they want. 
And like you said, for those people, this experience is not special. They come once a week. They come whatever. And so we would then have, like, I would I would work dinners where we would have, like, the two, like, the two, the evil couple that comes in <laughs> at least twice a month who always make our lives hell, who want this and that special, and they make us bend over backwards, largely because I think that's what makes them feel important and special is that they're able, they're, they can be this difficult and they will still be taken care of. We will, we will have to spend so much energy on them that at the table next to them where there's a couple that has been saving up for five years for this to be their big five-year anniversary dinner that like they've never eaten in a restaurant this nice in in their life. We are giving them a B plus experience because we know we can get away with it and they'll still be wowed because we need to take that energy and give this horrible group like everything they need so that they don't complain to our owner about like how they got terrible service tonight and so that would really break my heart where I really wanted these people I was like we could if we like pulled out all the stops on this table that like saved up to have their five-year anniversary here like they would remember this night for the rest of their life you know what I mean totally and instead we're like they'll be fine like the dessert's great they'll love it like you know what I mean let's make sure that you know these evil dermatologists are happy (laughs) okay so one so one of the topics we have to touch on is tipping and i'd like to start with like how are those evil goons in the fine dining situation tipping and how was like what was the tipping landscape across your career that's such an interesting question so obviously like i said i started in england no tipping flat out um which was fine because it wasn't expected like i went into that job agreeing to an hourly rate I made that hourly rate. Like, that was the social contract I engaged in in that country. I mean, you should get tipped for dealing with drunk British men, but... Yes, but... (laughs) I know. But, but like, yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. Um, Then I came back to America when I bartended in Burlington. Um, Vermont. Burlington, Vermont. That was, like, back in the day... That was, like... And I think this is still true in, like, non-metropolitan areas, like... The default was really like a dollar a drink. So like no matter what the drink was, one dollar per drink if you were bar- went for bartending. Serving, it was usually 20%. You okay. know what I mean? And and also like in a lower income area, like Berlin, like Vermont is just, there's not as much money as there is in like New York. Right. Like you, the tip would usually be rounded down. Like you know what I mean? If you're going to round, if the 20% is like 750, it's like in New York they might round up to eight. In Vermont they're rounding down to seven. Things like that I would notice. And also... A thing I really remember is, and this isn't so much about tipping, but like in when I was serving in Vermont, I remember any time a check was over a hundred dollars, I knew the table was gonna be upset. Like I like especially if it obviously it was like a huge party and it was over a hundred dollars, that's different. But like if it was like two or three people and the check was like over a hundred, I just knew it's like they're gonna be like they're gonna look at that and be like, damn, we ordered more drinks than we should have. Like this is a lot of like a hundred dollars for dinner is like a lot of money. And they would be upset, and then the tip would usually go down as, like, a that's how they're going to kind of save some money. That was really common. And I remember, like, when I started working at the fine dining restaurant, like, that was so – I had I would always get so anxious when I had to drop a check over 100. And then I was, like – I remember, like, my first lunch service at this restaurant, I think I had to drop a check for two people for lunch. That was, like, $750. And I was, like, shaking. I was, like, they're going to be so mad. They're going to be so mad. And then they just, like, put an Amex on top of it. Like, didn't open the check to look at it. And I was, like – I was like, I like went to a manager and I was like, am I allowed to just like run that? Like, they don't know how much that bill that is. And they were like, 
it is fine. Like, they will be okay. <laughs> like, oh. and it was really wild to me. And what, I'm sorry, could we just like quickly put a point on that? What the hell are people eating for $750 at lunch? The wine. It was oh. usually the wine. It was an Italian restaurant. So, like, it wasn't uncommon to, like, I mean, like, granted, like, lunch there was like expensive. You know what I mean? Like, pastas were like, like, if you did like a full three course, like Italian, like, some, like, split some appetizers, like, we're getting up to like, you know, a hundred something bucks and then two bottles of like $300 wine. It was like not, it wasn't every table, but it wasn't oh unheard of. Like it wasn't unheard of, especially because like that was the kind of restaurant where like that was all going on expense Amexes. It wasn't money out of their own pocket. Sure. And it's like, if you're at like the C-suite level and you're like doing these like fancy executive meetings at like a fancy restaurant, like part of the sh- the song and dance is like getting the nice bottle of wine and showing that you know a bottle of wine to order and you know, all that's sort of part of it. Um, Wow. But the tipping, I would say, like, the tipping landscape there was, like, pretty straightforward, 20%. We had some regulars that would tip well. Like, there was a couple, but, like, I remember, like, it was pretty straightforward there. Like, it was an older money restaurant, which is very much, like, pretty tight with cash, like, even though they're all very wealthy. So, like, 18 to 20% pretty strictly across the board. Um, then I worked at a restaurant called, uh, well, then I worked at a hotel for a year or for, like, six months. Um, which was just, like, a, a very different experience. That was, like, um, that job was technically a union, so, like, I got a much how- higher hourly rate, and, like, oh, nice. some things, like, certain parties had, like, gratuity included, and people tipped fairly well at the hotel, I think, also because, like, when you're when you're working at a hotel bar, um, you're going to see the same people for, like, three days. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. if they're going to, if they're, the people who drink at a hotel bar are probably drinking there every night they're staying in the hotel. Yeah. So it behooves them to try to kind of make a relationship with that bartender. Yeah. So I thought that, I felt like the tipping there was a little bit better. Um, then I worked at a restaurant called Rosemary's for four years in the West Village. It's, like, a very popular, like, brunch Italian, ca- like, very nice but casual spot. Um, I worked there forever because that was, like, a really consistent, really solid gig. Um, and similarly there, like, I had my regulars that tipped, like, fancy or whatever, but, like, mostly it was pretty straightforward, the 20%. Um, when I moved into, like, my final restaurants, which was more, like, the cool natural wine, like, industry pop, like, popular among other people in the food and wine industry restaurants, which is what I did um, until I sort of left the industry in 2021, Um that was a little bit more like, you know, you would have people like obviously everywhere there's going to be the people who just have the 20 percent. But there was a lot more there of like the people in the know who were like there to have a certain experience and you could really like provide a personal experience and show them really cool wine. And like um, there was other people coming from other restaurants that the tipping was a little bit more all over the place in terms of like it was sort of like a handshake of like we tip really well here because we know you're going to come to our restaurant, like things like that. Right. So it, it sort of varied a bit more there. And then obviously... <laughs> Tipping during the pandemic was a whole different ballgame. <laughs> mm. um, how so? We, pr- I like, it's it's not to like make it too dramatic, but like trying to remember it exactly is a little bit like digging into like trauma memory. Like it's really foggy at times, but I remember pretty early on, like we got stiffed on a couple checks where we like s- management pretty, or ownership pretty quick. We like, we were like, hey, so like, we are tech. This is like pre-vaccines. We were like, we are like technically like risking our lives by serving these people. So it yeah. doesn't feel like tipping can be optional. And they were like 100%. Yeah. So we changed like the tipping style a little bit there. Um, and it was, it was, that was a really weird time because the people that were coming to restaurants first, like the second that restaurants were said that they could be opened again, were not the greatest sort of people. 
Like No, they were not. Um, and it was complicated because we were reopening because like I worked at that time I worked for a very small restaurant in the East Village called Kindred. And I there was like seven of us who worked there. It was like a it was like a small business ownership thing. And they were like, We have to reopen financially. Otherwise yeah. this restaurant's going to close. No one is forced to come back to work. But like if you want to come back to work, we are reopening. And so I went back to work. They had paid for our health insurance through like the closures. They took really good care of us. So we opened for that like first summer. And it was complicated because I was like, yes, I'm glad people are coming here so like we can make money and keep this business open. But wow, you guys really don't care about like safety. Like it was such a fight to make people can like stick stick to COVID protocols and stuff like that. And tipping was also it was just not acknowledged by a lot of those people that like the risk level that was happening was like very different than like your normal restaurant work from 2019, you know? Totally. My God. Did you, I'm, yeah, I remember like, I think I've had to sort of memory hole a lot I think of we all did, yeah. people's behavior during that time. Cause there were people <laughs> that I knew that I still know who were doing all kinds of shit during the pandemic that I'm like, like the one, the stuff that I really took issue with was the people who are like, let's just go cough on the locals in Tulum for, you know, a yeah, couple totally. months, you know, and really behaving in a way that I was like, oh, you would have been given the smallpox blankets out. Like you yeah. are really revealing yourself to be. <laughs> and I mean, to a certain extent, like I feel being New Yorkers, like we're probably more not bitter, but we have feelings about it that are even more sharp than a lot of people because I think for us like at least for me anyway like there was an automatic like disparity between the people who even stayed in the city yeah. versus the people who immediately went to go spread the disease you know usually in Florida um, but all over the country wherever they were from yeah usually. wherever they were from and those pretty much without exception all of those people I just talked about were the same people whose asses were planted for that indoor dining in July 2020 exactly and it would only serve it would only stand to reason that those are the people who I think just on a certain level, I just think don't care. Like, they just don't care. I think they know. I think most of them are smart enough to know that the kind of choices that they were making at that time were, like, public health shredding. It was pre-vaccine. Yeah. I mean, I think the general theme with that was, and, like, to tie it to just, like, restaurant, it, like, issues among restaurant clientele and, like, the restaurant industry is, like, just um, – a lot of people don't think it is their responsibility to like think about the social ramif or like the ramifications of their actions. You know what I mean? Like they're very much, they think about how to get what they want and like within like the technical guidelines of what they're allowed to do or sometimes maybe fudging those rules and they do it. You know what I mean? I remember like serving, I remember this group of girls that would come in to Kindred like right when dining started um, and they would drive to Connecticut because the equinoxes were open. So they would drive to Connecticut to work out at Equinox and then come to this restaurant in New York. And that was like, it was just like hard to be like, I have to like now like serve you. And I like don't agree with your behavior or your, like what you're doing. And like, there was just like, it was weird stuff like that. So, and I think that that like similarly, that sort of like what that, how that translates into like normal day restaurants when we're not talking about like the deep of the pandemic is like, people just don't think about like, it is like you're entering into like a you're engaging with like a, a communal space that involves like a huge amount of people, not just on the client, like the guest side, but also the number of people working. And like there's ramifications to all of your actions. You know what I mean? Totally. If you, like if you 
if you show up like with six people instead of four, like there's there we have to figure out a different t- like there's all these things where it's like this everything you do has like a cause and an effect and like obviously we're not saying that you have to be perfect and show up and like not it, like it's not like a militaristic like obviously the restaurants are about having fun and being you know free and like flu- fluid but like it's the idea yeah that like you can kind of get whatever you want from it and not give back I think that kind of ties back to the New York thing where it's like the people who like don't didn't stay they left the second they had they needed to and then they came back the second they wanted to like there's no give and take it's all take you know what I mean I want to once again thank today's sponsor PNC Bank one of the perks of just getting started on your financial journey is that you can learn from the mistakes others have made like not taking advantage of automating different areas of your finances so that you can avoid them I'd love for you to join me on April 6th for Six Money Lessons I Wish I Learned Earlier, a totally free webcast for students. In this practical workshop, I'll share the important money lessons I wish I'd learned earlier. This workshop is for anyone who wants to get better with money, no matter where you currently are on your financial journey. I'll be covering topics like the importance of investing early, even if you only have a few dollars to spare, the biggest misconceptions about credit cards and credit scores, how the financial buddy system works and why you need it in your life, and other tools to help improve your relationship with money. good. You'll leave with relatable, judgment-free advice that you can start implementing right away. Save your spot and join from anywhere using the link in today's episode description. See you there. We're excited to once again be partnering with Nutrafol here on the Financial Confessions. We actually talk about Nutrafol a lot around the office since our marketing director, Rachel, started using it earlier this year. To be totally honest, hair growth is not something that personally affects me, so I'm happy that we found a product that has had a positive impact for someone else on our team. We all know men experience hair loss, but many women do too, even though it's not as openly spoken about. But here at TFD, we tend to speak pretty openly with each other, and Rachel has openly spoken a lot about dealing with postpartum hair loss, as well as general changes in her hair texture and thickness since giving birth. After all of her other postpartum symptoms subsided, it's the one that has remained the longest. She's changed up the products she uses and stopped applying heat like hair dryers and curling irons completely, but nothing has made a real impact. She started taking four Nutrafol capsules every morning with breakfast and says she can already see a difference in the amount of hair she's shedding. We love that for her. Nutrafol supports healthy hair growth from within by targeting the five root causes of thinning, stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, and metabolism through whole body health. And in a clinical study, 86% of women reported improved hair growth after six months. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code TFC to save $10 off your first month subscription. This offer is only available to U.S. customers for a limited time, plus free shipping on every order. Get $10 off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code TFC. And I think in, in major cities, New York being one of them, there is a whole class of restaurant that people go to just because they want to go to that restaurant, mm-hmm. not for the food, not for the drinks, not for the decor even. They just want to go because that's the restaurant other people are totally. going to. Yeah. And I think that those, and I know you've worked in some of those types of restaurants and you know, recently my husband and I went to, we were planning to go somewhere else. It was closed that day. So we ended up going cause we like to eat at the bar. It's often easier for us to get seated in kind of like places that are crowded and we went really early on an off day. So long story short, this place where you normally have to wait forever to get a table, we were able to sit at the bar. Um, and the food is really good. Um, I won't take that from it. But I was just honestly agog at the behavior that I was seeing around me for like not even, again, we're not talking about people who are like, it's like the end of the night and people who have had too much to drink and they're behaving badly. Like 
we saw this woman and I have to shout out my husband because he will always perform a citizen's arrest when he sees like behavior <laughs> like this. Like he will, he will step in, he will say something, he will stop the person. But like this woman berated multiple bartenders and servers because she didn't like, basically she, she went to this bar that's like a Negroni bar and asked for this like tiki drink that they didn't even have the supplies to make. And the bartender was like, I'm so sorry. Like we won't be able to make that. Um, here's some alternatives, blah, 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 blah. So she berates her, brings over the the. Uh, also, she was ordering this tiki drink and braised beans, which I was like, "Girl, All right, God bless." Just truly like an act of war on your digestive system. Truly. But <laughs> anyway, so she like brings over the other bartender and is like. I'm all about service and like blah, 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 blah. And this woman is like, you know, head to toe designer, whatever. She's clearly not from New York. She's in town. She's going to this restaurant because she saw it on yeah. TikTok or whatever. And we were talking to the bartender after and I was like, I am just, I cannot believe that someone spoke to you like that, especially for something that it was not even your fault, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, oh, there's at least two of those every day, like yeah. in this kind of restaurant. And I, honestly, I don't know how, I'm a, they must be making good money there. So I assume that's why they stay. But I know yeah. that you've seen a lot of that type of behavior and I'd love to just kind of hear about it. Yeah. I mean, I think what has happened, I think something that has happened a lot in the restaurant industry is that. Um, the experience of going to restaurants has become currency. Mm. So it's not now just about going to a restaurant for yourself and seeing the bartender you like or sitting in the room that you like or eating the specific roast chicken that you like or trying a new place and seeing if you like it. It's about going somewhere to then say at the part the next party you go to like oh I went to Carbone or getting the photo to post on Instagram to show that you went to this place that's hard to get into you know what I mean it's about taking your experience and making it into currency and so and that has cultural capital and whatever if you're like an influencer if you're trying to become an influencer it has like actual capital right there's right. all these like there's all these like other kind of aspects happening to it and what I think happens is it it divorces people from realizing that the experience of like going to a restaurant is actually quite personal. Like it's, right. it comes up to personal taste and personal desire. And so what happens is you have someone going to a Negroni bar, which is like restaurants, like for a restaurant to be great, like, uh, like, like for a, lot, a restaurant to be great, they kind of have to specialize, right? Like unless they're like the beauty of like a diner is that they can do everything, right? Like you can go to a diner and like you can get like a gyro and I can get chicken fingers and our friend can get a tuna melt and like it's all going to be pretty good diner food. Do you know what I mean? That's like the joy yeah. of like a diner. But like restaurants, like a night, like a, an elevated restaurant, it's like, you know, there's a place that's going to do Italian food really well, right? There's a place that's going to do Greek food really well or Israeli food, like whatever it is. And you have to sort of know what you're getting into, right? So it's like if you're going to Negroni Bar and you like drinking old school tiki cocktails, like either you need to buckle up to try something new or like know that you're not going to get the thing that you want, you typically want there, right? Right. And that's not anyone's fault, but it, but your own if you're like upset about it, right? Like I remember at the fan dining restaurant I used to work at, like people would get very upset that we didn't have French fries. It was like a Roman restaurant. It's like we weren't, we're just not going to have it. Yeah, but like... I think that it's because people aren't we don't think about going to restaurants anymore as in terms of like I what food do I want to eat right and I think it gets really I mean it you can you can zoom out far enough I think it also gets to a thing about like a lot of people who go to restaurants like are dealing with there's a lot of like shame around food like some like there's a lot of stuff about like food and drinking that are like also culturally sensitive so I yeah. think people get really charged about that as well like yeah 
there are people that it's very important to them to like say they went to a restaurant and document that they went to a restaurant, but like they really only want to eat an arugula salad, right? Like that, there are these different phenomenons happening, like all this stuff that's coming in that's really charged. And the front of house workers are like the frontline receivers to all of that, right? Um, and so it's hard. I think it's important to like, for restaurants to really kind of convey like what experience are they offering like and what and then for the guests to go in knowing like what experience are they about to get right yeah um and I think sometimes with social media and like when things get really blown out of proportion and really popular that can create sort of like a dissonance and then that's where I think a lot of that comes in yeah I mean it's also I think a lot of it is social media but I think a lot of it is also this increased and it's weird because we have sort of as a culture like karens are getting exposed every day right like we are sort of as a culture acknowledging that that kind of behavior is at best unsavory but also can be extremely abusive and unethical and all of these things and yet i do feel on some level that there and we talked about this a bit on your podcast but there's been such a democratization of access to a lot of things like so many things in our that are uh that are experiential while other things have spiraled out of control and cost like you know a lot of people can't afford to buy a home right now yep they can't pay for their student loans they can't do their health insurance is almost inaccessible Mm -hmm. but we have an ability to access food beverage experiential things at a level that previous generations did not yeah and i do think that there has become this weird sort of middle ground where we now expect like we're all sort of like we're all living worse off than our parents economically yet we're all sort of expecting that we should be able to like get the like first class dining room on the titanic experience if that makes (laughs) sense i think what that often translates to for people is this feeling of like, this better be good. That's, you know? yeah. It reminds me of when I worked at Ben and Jerry's, so back in high school. Yes. Again, I'm from like an area of Vermont that's like pretty low income. But we would constantly, the thing about Ben and Jerry's was that it was the expensive ice cream place in town. Like you right. can go to Stewart's and get an ice cream cone for $2. At Ben and Jerry's, a small was four thirty six. Right. That was like a big deal. So the we would deal with a really intense energy because the for the vast majority of people coming into Ben and Jerry's in Rutland, Vermont, that ice cream was a big treat for them. So it right. better not be f-ed up. Like it needs to be good. If there's any issue, if we're out of the flavor that they want, if the milkshake's not the right thickness, it's like, no, no, no. I'm spending like my extra $6 this week on this treat. It needs to be perfect. It's my special treat, right? Yeah. Um, And I remember realizing that like, oh, like this is about this is about like um, like access. Like I, this isn't – these people aren't like able to go to Ben & Jerry's all the time. They're doing this instead of – like they're doing this instead of this other thing this week because this is the treat they wanted. That's why it's so important to them that it's good. I think similarly maybe like our generation – like people now, it's like this is the thing that we have. <laughs> like yes. you can't buy a house, but like you can go – you can go to restaurants, you can go to bars, like that's our like source of joy. So it needs to be perfect. Like I do think there is, I think that that is a little bit of a factor. And I also think that like, because that is such a, especially in a city like New York, that's like such a focus of like, what is our social life is like going to restaurants and bars. It's like one of the main things to do in this city. I don't know that like, like sometimes I wonder if like the, 
restaurant restaurants and bars are meant to be consumed at the volume we are like to truly no. enjoy them like my favorite restaurants i go to often like i go to there's a couple of restaurants i go to at least once a month mm. and there's a million restaurants in New York that I have on a list that I've meant to try, but it's important to me to still go to these restaurants where I know the people that work there and I like the food and I love being there. And that experience like is that is more valuable to me in certain ways. And so I think that like what well, people will be like 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 I go to a, like a, there's a restaurant I really love in Greenpoint called Bernie's that I've gone to like many times. And you know, I've had a couple times people go there and be like, oh, yeah, I went there. It was, like, pretty good. Like, I didn't, I don't, I like, I don't like it the way you like it. But I'm like, well, yeah, but, like, I've been, I, I know the people that work there. I go there, like, fairly often. Like, I don't, like, live there. But I go there, like, at least once a month. Yeah. It's like there's a connection to it that is important to me. I'm not, like, a celebrity there. It's not, like, everyone's my best friend. But, like, I, like, I, like, know the server's names. I like the food there. That's special to me. I don't think you can have that experience if you're going to, like, a different restaurant every week to, like, tick off the list of being, like, I've been to every place in New York. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And I think that's also part of it is, like, people are almost looking for – I'm, like – like, I, I look a lot of these, like, TikTok accounts where they're reviewing. They, it's, like – it's a lot of, like – like, I, I can I, – I, I don't want to name them to, like, name anyone, but I can think of, like, four off the top of my head that are, like, people in New York, younger people in New York that, like, review restaurants – and you look at it, it's like they're going to like five or six different restaurants a week, which like, God bless, that's amazing. But they're going to like each of them once. And I sort of am like, I, I, I almost feel like you're searching for something that you're never going to find because right. if you're constantly trying new things. Like there is part of what's beautiful about restaurants and bars is that there's like an alchemy to it. Like they are yes. greater than the sum of their parts. The reality of the situation is a pasta can only be so good. It can be wonderful. But like, the magic of like the pasta being good and the martini being good and you and your friend having a good conversation in a room that feels sexy good and lighting. like a bar- good lighting like <laughs> all of these things suddenly there's like it is greater than the sum of its parts like it becomes like a moment for you and that magic is like that's like what you're trying to kind of catch every time that's what I'm trying to catch anytime I go to a restaurant pretty much like yeah is like feeling that that sort of like hypnotic days you can get put into of like I don't know it it takes you somewhere else like for a minute it feels like you've gone somewhere else and I think that that is if you're like constantly burning through restaurants being like is this perfect analyzing it like trying to consume it because you you're viewing it as like currency or this thing to master you're never going to find joy in it well, I mean, what you just described, which I totally agree with fundamentally cannot be commodified it can't exactly you can't pay a certain amount of money and be guaranteed to purchase it, you know, mm-hmm. because it's also the company that you're in. It's also, yep. you know, the time that you happen to go. And I do think, you know, part of what I, I'm interested to hear from you, obviously you have gone from working in the food service industry to working in fundamentally another service industry of a kind, which is performance. <laughs> yeah. Um, And I'm sure there are a lot of similarities and differences, but I would be interested to kind of hear how you feel about the performance industry as opposed to the food industry in those terms of the experience of it. Um, And also kind of what the money looks like, like, for example, how long did it take you to reach the same amount of money in comedy that you did in food service? Is there still kind of an allure of that money, you know, leaving with a big pocket full of cash every night, all that? Yeah. Um, So many amazing questions. (laughs) One, the biggest difference um, 
is between working in the restaurant industry and working in the entertainment industry is um, having a going in the restaurant industry. I had a position that I think deserved all the respect in the world and got none. And now I have a position that gets so much respect and praise that I'm sort of like, it's fine. Do you know what I mean? Like when I would tell people I'm a bartender, they'd be like, oh, cool. Like, are you in school? Like what, how, what, what, like what is the reason that you're in this job that we don't think is permanent? You know what I mean? Or like, oh, like my favorite thing, my favorite, not my, and by favorite, I mean the one that would make me the most angry. (laughs) Anytime you tell someone you're a bartender, they go, oh, you must make great tips, which what they don't read, which there's so much in that statement because what you're really saying is, Wow, you're my, you must be making so much money I don't think you deserve. Mm, 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 mm. You know what I mean? It's this added, it's this thing of like, wow, you're getting away with something. Good for you. That's how I always read that. Yeah. And I it was a, I would talk to my other bartending friends about it and we all felt that way. Wow, you must be making great tips. That's so great. Like you're so lucky. It's like it, and then it'd be like, what do you do? A lawyer. Wow, you must get a great paycheck. It's like it's the same thing. Yeah, you right? would never say that to someone exactly. in a white collar job. It's so exactly. So if it was a job that truly didn't get it, and now, like, when I tell when someone's like, oh, like, what do you do for a living? And I'm like, oh, I'm a comedian. They're like, oh, my God, that's so cool. And it's like, it, and it's like, I get why you think it's cool, but it is also kind of like, it's not that glamorous. It's like a hustle. I'm like, sometimes, like, sometimes you bomb. Sometimes you don't sell a show well. Sometimes, you know what I mean? Like, it's like quite degrading behind the scenes, but like sure. people think. And so it's like, it's just like a polar opposite in that way. That's like the most glaring difference between the two jobs. In terms of the money... Um, it's been, it like in my different restaurant jobs, it was like really kind of, it, it changed all the time. Um, the fine dining restaurant was very consistent, but I felt like the, like I would work, like I said, like, I remember like I was working like 50 hours a week and I think my paycheck, my paycheck was usually after like all the taxes and stuff about 700 bucks per week. Week and that's not including tips or including tips. That's including tips. So that's what? How much a month? Twenty. So I was probably making fifty thousand dollars a year. Okay, got it. At that first restaurant job. Okay, and how much were you like maxing out at restaurant jobs? Like the the stories that you hear about like New York bartenders that make like a thousand dollars a night. Like that's a different world. That's like the late night like club scene. Like there's those are kind of few and far between. And like, I don't, I don't know that world as well. I was never, cause I never was doing like the 4am bartending. I always did restaurants. Um, what I maxed out at. So the hotel would do these events, which would be buyouts, which would be, so it's like, there's no tipping. Like the, they bought out the event space. There's a gratuity built in. Some of those were like, you would make like $800 in a night, thousand dollars oh. in a night, which would be great. But also that hotel was a new opening. So it was those uh, part of the reason they were doing those buyouts was because no one knew about this hotel yet. And so like the week I made $800 in that one night, I think I made like $20 the other three nights. So it actually didn't like amount to like making a ton of money, if that makes sense, because mm-hmm. it was like kind of still leveling out. Um, the most money I ever was making in restaurants, honestly, was during the pandemic because we had our PPP loan pay. So we were getting a much, much, much higher baseline pay on top of the tips. Nice. Um, which was amazing and was which was really great because also that like we mentioned earlier, like we were risking our lives to work in a restaurant. So it felt earned. Um, that was like the only time that the restaurant I had a restaurant job that felt truly consistent where I knew yeah. we were making enough money. Um, because yeah, it's it's 
it can be volatile. I worked at Rosemary's was great because it was consistent and I would work the lunches um, and it was never like amazing money, but I knew it, it was going to be fine sort of thing. I would make like, that was like, I was like, I would work, I would, I would make like five, 600 bucks a week there working five days, which was enough to get by when I was like 24. I was like definitely pinching pennies at times and stuff, but it was like, I could get by on it like pretty well. Nice. Um, in terms of like balancing doing comedy, like making similar money, it's just such a different income now because it's not, it's like, I'm essentially a freelancer, right? So it's like, I get this gig that pays X amount of money and like, I'll live off that until I get the next, it, it doesn't happen as consistently. So I haven't actually, cause this is only my second year doing comedy full time. Um, and I'm not as, um, fiscally litigious as I should be. <laughs> I haven't, like, sat down and done the breakdown of, like, okay, how much money did I make last year? Like, what did that look like on a weekly basis? Like, I don't I, – I know that, like, I'm much more – I felt much more financially stable in the past year. But, again, at the same time, like, there was – I had it, – it, I've had – it because I get paid in larger sums now, instead of, like, getting paid weekly on, like, a W-2, I get paid on a 1099 for, like, a big project – there was like a contract dispute last year where I was supposed to get paid on one on um, in May, and there was like a miscommunication between my my um, my like representation and the client, and that check didn't come till August. Whoa! And I was supposed to live off that for the summer. Like that was a huge part of my income for the year, and I had to figure it out. You know what I mean? And so it it's I make more money now, but it's not as like consistent, and I'm like yeah. my own employer, and I don't have. Like, I don't have, um, like, it's no one else's problem but mine if something goes wrong, right? So Please get an accountant if you don't have I one. have an okay, accountant. Okay. I have an accountant, and they take care of all that okay, stuff. Okay, good. I was like, it should be someone else's problem, too, if you're a freelancer. Definitely, I think accountants are always worth it in that. No, I do have an accountant. I do in that have an accountant. Respect. So, obviously, we discussed the pandemic, which was a really, really terrible time to be a service worker. Um, but it's, I think, often under-discussed how awful of an industry it can be, um, just kind of ambiently, and, and how much those hazards are not factored into compensation. You know, as for me, the most striking thing when I was working in food service and for country clubs and things like that was the sexual harassment, honestly, mm-hmm. which was just so normalized yeah. and banal and expected as part of the job. Um, and I know that that doesn't exclusively happen to women, although it often mostly happens to them. But, you know, I know that you've spoken before about, you know, for example, um, how abusive chefs can be and, you know, how kind of um, just how difficult all of that stuff made the actual work of the job. So I'd yeah. love to hear you just kind of talk about those experiences. Yeah, if anything, I would say that's one of the spaces that I've seen improve the most in the nine years I've been in New York. Um, I think when I – and I do just want to, like, caveat, like, I love my time in the restaurant industry. Like, I do overall have positive things to say about working in it. I sometimes will go back to, like, the old bar I used to work at and pick up a shift if they need help. Like, I don't view that time in my life as this, like, hellscape that I escaped from by any means. I loved it. And a lot of my friends still work in the industry, and I think it is a wonderful industry to work in where you can have a beautiful career – Um, And that's why I talk about these things and that's why I care about them because I really think that that industry can still get better and still grow and I want it to be a place where people can have like the thriving careers they deserve because that also will only lead to better restaurants for you and I to go to, right? Right. 
Um, but yeah, I do think that that is one of the places that's at, 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 in my experience, a thing I've seen get better. Right. And part of what's tricky about restaurants, I guess this is any industry, but it's like, you only can speak to the experiences of the places where you've worked and where your friends are working. Right. So like, I'm not saying that like across New York, this is getting better. But when I lived in New York, when I first moved to New York, the rest, there was a, um, there was like a very much a culture of celebrity around chefs. And there still is to an extent. Like there's still like, ooh, this chef's opening this restaurant and that's a big deal. But um, I felt like when I first started in the industry, that was really, um, it was incredibly male focused. Like the celebrity chefs in New York in 2014, I felt like were very, it was very male heavy. And it was also, we were still really in an era of celebrating like gruff, miserable, alcoholic men chefs. Like that was sort of like, you know, like I think that like I loved Anthony Bourdain and I think what he did was amazing, but I do think like his, that like was almost like an on-ramp into like something that was much darker than what he was. Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? I totally agree. And I think that, I mean, I definitely like the chef, not the executive chef, but the person who ran the kitchen at the first restaurant I worked at, um, was had a drinking problem was fully sexually harassing people in front of like in front of staff we saw it all the time and it was just part of his like he was his food was amazing so it was like that's part of the thing is like isn't he this tortured miserable asshole who like we all live in fear of and it's like and I don't like at the time like I remember like I remember I wanted his approval because like that was the that was the the environment we were in was like if he if this chef approves of you like that's you've achieved something because he's such an asshole and I think that like yeah like I that was like a thing I really saw and I think that there has been like a reckoning across I mean there was I think like me too kind of spanned a lot of different industries and right. stuff but I think within the restaurant industry there was also this reckoning of like coming from all sides I think a front of house being like we we are done dealing with this and also I think a lot of really amazing chefs who were women who were queer who were straight men but who weren't like abusive alcoholics being like we're sick of this being the thing that's celebrated do you know what I mean and I think that that has it's really shifted I think that there's a much more positive energy around food I don't think it's like cool to be like the miserable like struggle like the miserable like um Cur- what's like the term for like the tortured artist tortured thank you that's yes. the term I um like the tortured artist of chefs like I don't think that's like the draw anymore and I do think that's it's better I feel like that is better I think that also restaurants know now like I think like there was that famous I mean I think the infamous New York story is the spotted pig right, right? which was like this infamous restaurant that was beloved I'd eaten there several times like I did not know I in within the industry it had this very dark reputation I was like not quite in at the time to like know that I found out later when everyone else did but it had a notorious history of enabling sexual harassment and sexual assault within it and then it was exposed and rightfully shut down and that restaurant was a huge deal before it got shut down it was totally. a, it was a really big hot spot like it was a place it was like a spot to go in the West Village which is like if you're a restaurant that can make it in the West Village, that's really impressive. Like, right. So it's like, it was an institution and it was taken down. And I think that people took that really seriously, you know? And I think like restaurants were like, oh, we need to have an HR department. We need to have these things because like, it's not just like the social and moral responsibility of it. Like, unfortunately within capitalism, it's like when the fiscal responsibility comes in as well of like, if your restaurant gets an eater article saying like the servers are being harassed and assaulted, like, 
it's going to come back and bite you, you know? I mean, that restaurant should have been canceled for the fries alone, I will say. They had some You and I hated their fries so the much. Worst the worst fries in the city. But I, mean, I hate a shoestring in general, controversial opinion, but we differ on that, but theirs were not shoestring. They were like the potato sticks you get in a can. Yes, they yes, were yes, yes. A, a maybe too I need far. to try Okay, so here's the thing, not to like derail us into french fries, but maybe I need to give shoestring a thought, a second try because that is what I think of a shoestring, but you're kind of making me think there's something. Where's a good place in New York to get a good shoestring? I have my fry spreadsheet we will we've we have been we've meeting to hang this. out yes. we're gonna go get like a martini and some fries Perfect. somewhere because we both love those things um and i'll give you a list that you can yeah. choose from we'll just um, pick and tell me where to meet you and i'll get okay. we'll get shoes fries. even better yeah um but i will say you know it's funny that you mentioned the anthony bourdain thing as an example of that because i remember my husband and i went to go see i am just referencing him left right and center in this episode i don't usually do that <laughs> um we went to go see the anthony bourdain documentary recently which okay. I, I had some qualms with um sure. but i have not seen it it was it was okay. It, what was interesting about it, though, was how much it featured that a lot of his behavior. Don't get me wrong; like he seemed like a much better and more humane person yeah. than what you're describing. However, a lot of the behavior and many of his former, you know, colleagues and collaborators like describe really toxic behavior that was going on, and it was so jarring to me that before that movie before the documentary aired there was a preview for the julia child documentary that was that came out last year and i just thought watching it i was like julia child has had such a massive impact on america's Mm -hmm. culinary life she was beloved she had an iconic status similar to anthony bourdain probably exceeding it and she was by all accounts a wonderful human being who was like yeah. responsible and compassionate and treated everyone fairly and didn't engage in toxic behavior and that's not to say that you know people can't be troubled and still have a lot to offer but it the idea that i think was really prevalent that you're describing that it's almost a necessity to be to some extent abusive or at least mm-hmm. um you know not really acting above board all the time in order to produce great things i think that's what needs to go Totally. And I think that, like, I I mean, now we're almost kind of traversing into the conversation about, like, because it's, like, I think that the notion that someone has to be perfect or, like, not completely non-problematic to be shown or, like, have their story told is false. Like, I think that Anthony Rodane, like, never claimed to be perfect and, like, in fact, never claimed, like, you guys should want to be like me, right? Like, that's not, like, what he was, like, putting out there. Mm -hmm. It's, like where does the responsibility of something like that fall where people watch this band who was like clearly had a lot of issues and being like, I want to be like him. It's like, that's not on him. That's on these people who are having like an incorrect response to an extent. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And so that's where it gets like, I don't know. It's like, it's the same thing. My friends always say like, kind of how like we're in an age where like satire doesn't work because people don't understand. Like when you watch girls, you shouldn't want to be like Hannah. Like that's not the point. You know what I mean? It's like, that's like where it's it's it like Sex in the City too. It's like these things where it's like we watch them and it's like we're not sort of like you can appreciate something and not like emulate it. And I think that that is I mean this has like nothing to do with restaurants really, but I do think it's interesting to like sort of look at that where it's like yeah, I think it's just important to have those conversations about like sell you can celebrate something, but also like it, you have to acknowledge the problems or and not like try to be it. <laughs> A hundred percent. Well, um, there's like a million questions that I didn't get to um, about the whole other part of your life now, which is being a comedian and influencer. (laughs) So we may have to have you back. I'll come back anytime. To do another episode. Um, But in the meantime, where can people go to find you and your hilarious content? Thank you. Um, You can find me on TikTok or Instagram at Jake W. Cornell.
And in the meantime, we'll see you back here next Monday for an all new episode of the Financial Confessions. Bye. Bye.